Are you curious on how much your business is worth? Get your free no obligation offer from Open Store at open.store. The subscription market is predicted to grow to nearly $500 billion by 2025. Recharge is a leading subscription management solution helping e-commerce merchants of all sizes launch and scale their subscription offerings. Over 15,000 merchants use subscriptions powered by Recharge to grow their business and their communities by increasing average order value, reducing churn, and providing predictable recurring revenue. Turn transactions into long-term customer relationships and experience seamless subscription commerce with Recharge. Check them out at rechargepayments.com forward slash DTC pod. Yeah, well, Emily, thank you for being here today. I'm super excited to learn more about Off Limits. Um, I know you mentioned, you know, uh, I, I was looking at your guys's actual TikTok and your website and your whole brand is an experience um, all the way from the website to every single touch point. So super excited to have you on here today to learn more about Off Limits um, and, and just learning more about your background as an entrepreneur and a CPG founder. So can you tell the audience a little bit more about you yeah, and, so and what Off Limits is all is about? Very defiant new cereal brand we have vegan gluten-free flavors like the ingredient panel is super clean and focused on whole ingredients but really the concept is to just challenge and create a truly better for you version of all the fun cereals we grew up with because it really is just you know all the character driven toys animations colors flavors like everything fun happens on that side of the cereal space and then they just kind of killed off all the fun on the healthy side. So Off Limits is really here to unite both sides of the industry, but with a modern take on mascots and art and all of that kind of stuff too. So cereal to me is one of the only CPG products that can carry culture in a, a mass market kind of way. So I felt like these bigger companies who were defining cereal culture for so long just decided to stop and stop innovating. They got kind of scared to touch on topics that were not, you know, easy for brands to talk about. And that was an opportunity for Off Limits to come in and really challenge what modern personalities and modern consumers are excited about and not shy away from those conversations. So the glitter is real. I saw it on your TikTok and I didn't know if it was actually real or not. Yeah, I think um, so. The glitter came about, I mean, mostly because I'm also like a child and just want to invent all this like really weird fun stuff. But it came about because we kept seeing people mixing their cereal flavors and kind of having fun customizing it. So we just wanted to allow people to play with their food a little bit more. And there's nothing more fun than glitter. And my background is on the food side of things. So I spend a lot of time cooking and around friends who cook and edible glitter is really popular in the baking industry. So we wanted to do our own take on it with um, no artificial ingredients or colors, no sugar, no flavor. It really is just edible glitter and then butterfly pea flour. So it turns the milk blue or really any liquid that you put it in. Um, but people are using it as eyeshadow. You can use it as watercolor paint. You can put it on any food that you want, any drink that you want. Um, but obviously, we hope that it's off limits cereal. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. 
So Emily, what's your, I know you'd mentioned it a little bit. So what's, what's your background in food um, before you got started with, with Off Limits? Yeah, so it's really split between food and fashion. I went to school for fashion design, but grew up really close to the hospitality industry. So even while I was in school and doing trend forecasting for fashion, which is where my career ended up going after school, uh, I always stayed really close to like what restaurants were opening. I was always cooking at home. I was always hosting dinner parties. And that got me thinking that trend forecasting was really missing food verticals and hospitality was really coming up in a huge way at that time. So I started writing about chefs, about um, restaurants, design, travel, like all of that kind of stuff focused on global trend forecasting. So I was traveling a lot um, and wanted a way to connect with people in each city that I was in. So I started this series called Breakfast Club, where I worked with these Michelin star chefs and they opened their doors in the morning to create this family style meal for a bunch of creatives, artists, other chefs, if they would get up early enough to come to the events. Uh, and it was really fun because there was no ulterior motive. This was like right around like Insta meetup time. So it was like quite a while ago. And the intention was truly just, hey, let's meet other people who are like-minded and the chefs also loved kind of taking a break from their tasting menus and just creatively putting their energy into something just super wholesome and family style like the food that they actually eat in general so where, where was this um so I did 40 plus events around the world I think the most I mean they were all so incredible, but um, I hosted one at Pujol in Mexico City with Enrique Olvera, and he sent me the menu, and he was like, oh, we're doing, you know, a fruit plate, and this and that. I was like, Enrique, a fruit plate? Like, what is that, <laughs> that going to be? Um, and of course, we get there, he's building this fruit plate, and it's like the most meticulously sliced mangoes in this like, beautiful, beautiful platter, and they, like, homemade yogurt that was the best I've ever had in my life like that is exactly why I loved this project so much because these mega chefs would just make the most comforting food possible um we did one at Contra in New York City with um Fabian and Jeremiah Gabriela Camara Mike Salamanov some some really awesome chefs so I feel very lucky to have been able to work with those chefs and honestly the creative people who ended up attending um it was a, it was a really cool series and that actually is what got me my cookbook deal so um it kind of flowed into the next phase of my career as well do you have content of this or like is this is this stored anywhere i mean i feel like this is so prime for like good content i do um it was I have photos from most of the events. Like we had a photographer, we created some really cool video. We did this um, event at the Vice rooftop garden in Brooklyn. And that Mike Solomonov did that event. And he just created this like Israeli feast. There was 15 different dishes and we just got this really beautiful content um, video from that. But yeah, honestly, this was also all kind of pre- Feeling that pressure to make like content for every single platform and just extract every bit of content for the sake of it. So it was this time where people were really connecting with each other. And I honestly stopped doing the series because I felt like 
social media and these types of events got to a certain place where it just wasn't scalable and it would have changed the dynamic of the events and what I really wanted people to get out of them. So I might bring it back. A lot of people have been asking for us to do something like that for off limits. And I think we definitely will. And now I get to be the brand and kind of still have, you know, some kind of budget to bring it in our own way instead of, I mean, I'm still a struggling creative. I'm the founder, so it's the same position, but more pressure. <laughs> That's super interesting in terms of like the the path that you're talking about and the experience and starting by hosting these like pop-ups and turn. And so you were turning those experiences that you were doing. Did that become um, your cookbook? Was it like those experiences of um, cooking with the chefs and, and the breakfast that they were producing or, or what was the content that and what was the story behind the book? Maybe you can share that with the audience. Yeah, that was actually the initial thought um, because how epic would it be to have Enrique's, you know, yogurt recipe and all these chefs making just completely different dishes than what you would expect them to. Uh, so the um, commissioning cookbook editor for Fiden came to one of the events and we became really close through that. She also lived in New York, so we would, you know, catch up occasionally. And after doing so many of these events, we got breakfast and started talking about what a book could really look like. So I spent months making this whole pitch on exactly that. And it got kind of taken up the ranks at Fiden. And they were like, I know this is different than your original idea, but we actually want you to do the global cookbook on breakfast, which is part of their core Bible collection series of global recipe books. So that was an amazing opportunity. And it took three years to research, develop and write 380 recipes from around the world. So that was more traditional breakfast. And I did talk to some of the chefs that we had worked with, but I said, you can't chefify it in any way. It has to be like what your mom made or what your grandma made or like the most core to that um, traditional breakfast dish for each country. And was that, was this the first book you had written? Was this your first time like writing uh, a big published book? Yes. Um, it was very scary to just even work on the organizational process and how to properly represent each of these countries and recipes. Like I just felt as I should like so much pressure to do right by everybody's national comfort food. Like people love breakfast. It's like the most, um, it's just like the most comforting memories. So I felt I owed everybody um, a lot for me being the person writing this, but I had been doing editorial before. So I understood global food. I understood global trends. I had written about it extensively. Uh, this was just the first time I got to really organize it and put it together in a, um, in a way like this. I feel like this is, no, I was going to say, I feel like this is so down Blaine's alley because Blaine built, um, he's co-founder of Seed It, a reservation app in New York City. I'm sure you're probably familiar with yes. with all of this. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, no. Awesome. I saw that in uh, the bio and I was like, sick. I downloaded that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it, it's just so funny because there, there's so many... There's so many elements of creativity that you're coming across once you're like into the food landscape and you're in the in the kitchen with the chefs and there's all these different opportunities. 
Um, and it's always really cool, like as an entrepreneur to like see where, see where things are taking you. And, and so one thing that I'm really interested in with you is like, what was the, what was the moment where you, you kind of took the jump from after, I'm sure you learned a ton in terms of like being in the kitchen with these chefs, understanding the trends, launching the whole project successfully. And then you were like, I want to turn this into my own brand and go the cereal route. Like where, where was the first like inklings of inspiration where you knew this was something that you could pull off and what was, you know, what were the steps you took to actually start executing, um, towards off limits? It was a struggle. And looking back on it, all the pieces were kind of being laid out perfectly in front of me. But, you know, when you're in that situation, you just it's hard to, like, dust off the path and see where you're going. Um, But every weird project I've done, like I was doing styling for Lucky Peach, like the food magazine, RIP, but like such a cool, such a cool experience. And then I as I said, I really wanted to transition breakfast club events in the way that I was doing them just because of the way that things were shifting and wanted to, and then I tried to like turn it into breakfast tours. So literally for like six months, I was trying to figure out what was wrong with food tours and how I, not wrong, but like what could be, um, what's my perspective of food tours and how we can focus on breakfast and highlight all these different smaller restaurants that don't always get talked about all the time and bring people on this kind of breakfast experience through the Lower East Side and worked with a lot of artists. We like illustrated the food. It was a whole thing. It was like a whole other business. Basically, I've just done a million creative projects in my career. Um, And when I turned in the book, it came out in 2019 but I had to turn it in about, you know, six months to a year earlier than that. I didn't know what to do. I was honestly got super depressed. Like I didn't really want to do the food tours. I got it to a point to where I could see if it could scale or not. And I just couldn't really see it scaling in the way that I wanted to. Um, And I wanted something tangible that I could build and not have a limit to. So cereal to me combines everything that I really love, which is food and art and and cartoons and toys and all of that kind of stuff. And just, I grew up, um, my mom is super healthy. I mean, thank you to her. We had really nice, like good, healthy cereal, but obviously that is not fun when you're a kid. So I would always go to my grandma's house and you cannot tell her what to do. So she had all the fun cereal and immediately I would like bypass saying hi, I would run to the cereal cabinet, like pull everything out and like just go nuts. And It was so much fun. I feel like those characters and that whole like serial culture was just out of reach for me that I really wanted to be able to develop my own out of um, a little bit more realistic personalities. Like I have zero emotional connection to Tony the Tiger and I I feel like I wanted to develop something that you could really feel a little bit more. Like building life behind the brand. So Emily, where does, um, I think that's a good segue for where Web3 might come into this. So why don't you talk to us a little bit about, um, you know, how you thought about pairing Web3 with Serial, what the link is for um, listeners who may not, you know, be as versed in terms of like the overlap between maybe CPG and Web3. But, um, you know, what was the link there and how do the characters play into it? And, um, you know, that creative kind of process. So 
I think to backtrack a little bit, the characters really came first. Like they are the brand. Um, they were built out of like my emotional struggles and the emotional struggles that I know from a lot of creative people, from just people in general. So there's just so much built into these characters already that people started really resonating with. So the goal was always to have the characters be the most important part of the brand and have them live in all of these different dimensions and ways. And Serial is like the vehicle for that. But when I started getting really into Web3, um, it was at a time when, you know, direct to consumer was super challenging. Like you can't win at Facebook ads anymore. It's like the game has changed so much. And even retail is super challenging. It's just a maze of complexity to figure out and to be successful at. And it takes a long time and a lot of capital, as does D2C. So when you start seeing that gameplay for new innovation die down and require so much venture funding that like it just you suck the life out of any products. Uh, it kind of triggers the forecaster in me where I'm like something new is coming. Like there's always going to be innovation and it's people who can get through the cracks and create something new that are going to be the next group of, of legacy brands and brands that can really help define what the next business structure is going to look like. So if you think about Warby Parker as the beginning of what direct to consumer is, we've seen every model possible come out of that and a lot of successful, amazing brands. But the reason why I am so excited about Web3 is because for me personally, it feels like one of my only opportunities to really make the brand as big as, as I see it being without having to <laughs> kind of just raise a ton of money and like pump it into these platforms that I'm just, I don't know, I don't want to keep funding them either. I want to fund our community. So the other part of Web3 being able to empower early adopters and bring a community of not even just consumers, but like collaborators together in a new way is like amazing. Like this is the type of brand I've always wanted to build. And the fact that it's all happening right now and that I have the opportunity to help build it is beyond. So I'm, I'm diving in so hard and I'm really excited. No, that's a, that's amazing to hear. And, and one question that I'd have, and I'm sure like the listeners um, may as well is how would you characterize the difference? Like in terms of what you're doing and building you, your guys's as a you know web three serial brand so to speak versus the traditional approach like you were mentioning uh in terms of having to raise a bunch of money and launching a d2c brand right so obviously you have the different components of ownership and participation in the community and all these things but if you really had to just characterize the difference of like what you guys are building versus what a traditional approach would be to like launching a serial brand like this um what could you speak to that a little bit yeah i think it's it's a tough question to answer right now because nothing really exists in CPG. Like I'm raising around right now. I still need to be in the real world and treat us like a traditional cereal brand. I'm all in on retail and really, really consider our D to C as this. You're a fan of the brand. You're going deep. We did not optimize our D to C site for like conversion for checkout. I wanted it to be about exploration and fun and like really trying to, dive into the brand. Um, and I use my fashion background for this a lot where I think of the brand kind of as 
a, a fashion brand would where you have your designer collection be your D to C you can drop like limited edition products. You can really like have your closest relationship with your consumer. And then we have this kind of diffusion esque line that is in all of our retail stores. It's the same type of product, but it kind of, that separation allows us to just like be a designer label and not focus so much on conversion. And I think that's where we've gotten so much brand affinity from because that's a hard choice to validate to investors. Um, but it's, it's worked really well for us. And what, mm-hmm. no, it's going to say what advice you have for people that, you know, have that internal battle of like optimizing for what they believe and what they know is true versus all of the blog and endless articles and tweets about conversion rate optimization and, you know, move the button here, change the call to action. It shouldn't say that it should say check out now or add to cart. And deep down you're like, but that's not the experience that I really care for, for my true audience. Um, but we're just fed these things and all this data that it just, it's like, it makes you feel crazy if you go against this data almost. So what advice do you have for founders that are struggling with that? Yeah, it's, it is purely based on the type of brand that you're trying to build. I would say uh, everything you just said is built on decades of psychology and user behavior. And there's so much validity in that. So to just throw it out the window and be like, no, I'm not doing this. Um, it has to be an intentional decision. <laughs> so um, unfortunately, what optimizes the best doesn't always emotionally connect or look the best from a design perspective or tell the story that you want to tell. So ideally, there's a balance between the two. But for me, if we are trying to be a fashion, a culture brand, like just as much as we are a food or CPG brand. So I would say any brands launching, you have you know, six to 18 months or so to decide who your early adopter audience is. Like who are the initial champions of your brand? You can't change that and you cannot shift that easily. So if you're, you have to just understand the market that you're trying to go into. And to me, uh, the early adopter space was really important because I mean, I come from counterculture everything and i wanted all of the other like counterculture art kids to be involved in what we were doing so if that means that we're sacrificing sales early on to get the right people championing our brand that to me was worth it yeah i think that's um that's a really important way to think about it. it's like you it's not one or the other it's not so black or, or white right it's it's understanding um, you know, your own brand and the principles that you need, need to st- stay true to and, and leveraging that. Um, Emily, the next question I'd have just in terms of like the logistics of uh, what you guys are pulling off, um, if I'm understanding it correctly, like you guys have the ability, you've set up a way to like buy NFTs um, through your brand, which give you access to cereal. Am I, am I understanding that correctly? And how, how, did, how does that kind of work? Yeah, so there's quite a few layers to our Web3 strategy. Um, We're having a lot of fun with it right now. Uh, Utility is the most important thing for me. So I would say for brands trying to get into the space, it's kind of similar in that it has to make sense for your brand and you have to take on the responsibility of then educating your consumers on Web3. And 
getting a wallet and going through the whole process and, and doing all this stuff. And it, it is a lot of time. So you don't need to just have a checkmark NFT project just to say you did. It's a lot harder to market it than anybody thinks. Like it's not this like free for all space right now. People are really watching and paying attention to what's happening. So we're trying to set an example as a brand of one that really cares about utility and building um, velocity like for our consumers. So early adopters of our NFTs will hopefully have these like crazy benefits and I'm gonna do everything I can to make them worth a lot in the long run. Um, but the projects that we're doing are really cool. I mean, the first thing we did was the first NFT cereal toy. And I gamified it a little bit where, you know, if you get an exploding cereal box, you get like a free variety pack of cereal. But the goal was just, um, we had this cereal cart at Art Basel in Miami Design District, and we partnered with Surface Magazine. And I we did this like QR code to claim um, NFT process. And I just wanted to see who would know what an NFT is, who had a wallet already, who actually claimed the NFT, who interacted with us after and like followed us on Twitter or Discord or wherever. Um, and that basically told me it's not time <laughs> for mass consumer. It is a crypto native world, um, which was my assumption. And I wanted to kind of help bring some new people into the space if we could, which was great. But this next project um, that we just launched, we have the allow list open. It's called Best Serial in the Metaverse. And the goal for that was to see how we could get people to collaborate. So we pulled 10 artists from our community. They created generative versions of our serial mascots, and that will act as a mint pass. So you get this like unique piece of art that is like just your mint pass. And then that will give you access to have to collaborate with all the NFT holders and design a serial box. So we're putting forth everybody's, we're asking everyone to put forth NFTs that they own, and we're gonna make this like collage serial box. And you'll get an NFT of the final design, and then we're going to print out the final design and send it to everybody. But we've done artist boxes in the past, and they resell on secondary markets physical boxes for like three to five times what they're worth. So I was like, let's try this with with NFTs and kind of bridge that you know physical to digital kind of space a little bit more. I think if there's a there's no better indicator probably than the fact that you have boxes reselling in the aftermarket because uh, I was gonna say like well you know okay well the the Tesla design district you know didn't go as hoped but uh, I I had, don't think I've heard of many other CPG products that you know resell just the packaging um, in aftermarket so you have a super strong competitive advantage over there and i was hoping for you to say that we would get passes to the breakfast club with the nft pass so <laughs> i feel yeah. like those worlds are colliding now they definitely are i think that's a great idea i'm actually working on what a pass structure could look like um i'm working with novel right now which is an amazing shopify plugin um i'm advising for them and we're really like one of the first brands who are using their platform and that will allow us to have NFT gated product pages and all of these kind of exclusives that any of our holders will then be able to get access to. So I think the pass platform is really going to be our next, um, our next thing. And the design district project, it actually was, 
it was so successful that design district said we can do whatever we want in the space. And we just brought in all of these really interesting people. But what I learned was that the amount of education that I'm going to have to do personally um, is a lot right now. And I want to make sure that we can help do that. And I think to bring in, we have to kind of focus on crypto native people to then help kind of bridge everybody else and really show the value and the utility and everything that we're doing. And then we'll like kind of backtrack and bring everybody else in on it. Yeah. And I think Miami and design district was probably like a great place to try it at because if it's a little bit hard to get people to do it there, I bet, you know, in the rest of other areas of us, like it's probably going to be even a bigger challenge. And so I totally get what you're saying that it's not just the cost of implementation, but it's the education part, which at the end of the day, you just want to focus on, you know, creating, you know, adding more SKUs or building the best product possible or building the artwork and the experience of your brand. You're not, a, you know, you're not a Web3 education company and, and the capital and time that that would take would probably waste all those resources. And then the product is going to take the sacrifice and the hit for that, which is not the goal. Um, Emily, the, the next question I'd have um, in terms of, I know you mentioned a little bit about like how you guys got set up and, you know, working down the line with Novel to potentially set up different um, gated access and, and all that sort of thing for NFT holders. But um, if you could just like at a high level, like when, when it comes to actually like building um, an NFT project that like overlaps with a D2C or, or CPG brand, how do you actually go about doing that? Is it um, you know, did you have to go custom uh, in terms of like all that or are there different applications that you can use to like bridge, um, you know, the NFT and Web3 side of things into like the Shopify ecosystem or how do you how do you guys think about that as you build? I think for me to give any kind of advice on that, I would want to know more about specific projects because there's so many different there's a lot of lines of questioning that I would want to ask before kind of arriving at a suggestion for somebody. I would say if you have a D2C company and you just want to test out NFTs, Novel is the easiest way to do that because you can buy it with USD. So you don't need crypto, you don't need a wallet, you don't need any of that stuff. Like they've kind of really been able to create this web 2.5 bridge, which is so powerful and will allow brands to just kind of test it out without really building out anything. Um, Anything outside of that, you are speaking to a crypto native audience and you as a brand should be prepared to follow through forever, essentially, with what you're doing because you're gaining the trust of this community by selling an NFT, by building, you know, a platform for it. And then, you know, you sell a bunch of NFTs for you to just kind of drop off or do one project. It's... Um, it's not great for brands getting into NFTs. So I think for a brand, if you're interested in it at all and you really want to start working in the space, at least for bigger companies, I know um, Lollapalooza and and that uh, their agency are doing things in this really cool way where, and I think a lot of bigger brands are doing this too, but I think they've been super thoughtful about it where they're buying NFTs from collections before even having a conversation with them. They'll buy 
you know, a doodle and then join the discord and be like, Hey, what's up? Like, we just want to be part of this community. Like this is who we are. If anyone has any ideas to bring doodles to Lala or like any of the festivals, like let us know. Um, and it's really like low touch and they bought into the community just like everybody else. So everyone in web three is extremely thoughtful and I've found kind, supportive, connective, everything. Um, but where it gets a little muddy is like when brands jump in and like try and capitalize off of everything and like think that it's just like a quick money grab and build projects with that intention. And then they're kind of out and they're like, okay, we did this as a marketing check mark, check mark for the quarter. Um, so it's, yeah, I, I think be cautious as a brand, make sure you're actually interested in investing in the space and um, building something from scratch is a lot of work. So yeah, I, th I think that's something that's really important. It's like not, you know, if you're thinking about Web3 strategy, it's not just about let's check the box. It's like, let's be intentional. Why are we actually doing this? How does this fit into what we're doing as a brand? And maybe maybe the answer is to kind of for the brand to get the feet wet to like actually start engaging with some of these NFT communities themselves to like really understand it um, before trying to pull off anything um, of themselves. That makes a whole bunch of sense. And then I know that like we've heard a bunch of rumblings about novel um, in terms of like you were saying, kind of providing that on ramp into the Shopify ecosystem for NFTs. Could you just um, kind of describe like, like how, how does it, how does that work for brands and what's the tool suite um, that they hope to give brands for that, um, you know, that layer of web three in, in the future? So, I think you should have Anna or Roger on from Novel to talk about all of that individually because they will like go down the rabbit hole with you on all the functionality that they're bringing in and everything that they're trying to do for brands. But what's really cool is that it's built on Polygon. So everything is kind of pre-minted. It creates this super seamless um, transfer uh, for consumers, for brands. Like they basically do the whole setup for you. So it's kind of like magic happening in the background. And as a brand, you can then just focus on the utility side, which is also important. Um, so yeah, I mean, you get to basically design your own NFT project, figure out, and to me, the word NFT too, like in a few years, no one's gonna know they're dealing in NFTs and they're just gonna be holding stuff in their wallets. like trading things, buying things, and NFTs are going to represent their purchases. They're going to represent tickets. They're going to represent all these different things. But I think a lot of people get caught up on that terminology and the stigma around the industry right now. But there's so much tech being built that everyone is going to be using in the next few years and not even know. I, I just think like for the brands that I've seen that are doing the NFT projects, right? It's more so that the NFT fits an element that their brand has been missing rather than the brand missing the NFT as in, you know, like you, you don't just go in it. Like if the utility is so obvious to you, you should probably do it. If you have to force into think into what the utility is, it probably doesn't make that much sense. I heard the other day about a CBD company that was just really struggling with the payment processing um, and they were just getting shut down from everywhere. And they're like, how about we just turn this into a community, sell the NFT access that happens to come with 
the CBD for the special token holders, etc. And I found that super interesting. Um, because just like, you know, just like you in these cases, it's, it's like, it actually helps really solve a problem rather than, than trying to fit it in. Um, so yeah, I think, I think this case, um, I think novel would be awesome to have on to just spit more on this. That's why I love this time. It's like the wild west and everyone gets to be super creative. Um, and there's no rules. Like you can do exactly that. And now I hope they're seeing a lot of success in, in doing that. So there's just a lot of opportunity for brands that are either priced out or feel kind of left out of mainstream culture in a lot of ways. And that's, what's exciting to me about it. I mean, not even getting into the artist side of things and how undervalued creative and artists and everything are in society in general. And that this is really the first time that I've ever seen where artists and uh, tech and finance, like everybody needs each other equally and has to work together to create these projects. So that is what got me so excited about it, um, like almost two years ago. So, And I'm curious, how did you manage, what, what, what did community mean for Off Limits prior to this? Like now I'm sure, you know, the picture is becoming a lot clearer. There's all these ideas for how Web3 can bring this community together at value, be part of the brand. But prior to that, how did the community start forming? I saw you guys have, you know, a fast growing TikTok. It seems like you guys have a really strong community. What has it looked like to build that community? And, and what is community at Off Limits today? Yeah, it's, it's honestly just not taking ourselves too seriously. TikTok happened really quickly because we were just messing around and being ourselves and not overthinking it too much. And I think that relates to a lot of people because especially with brands, you kind of get in that like, here's all these like perfectly calculated studio pictures of like your product and this and like, oh, here's an influencer ad. Like it's just this like formula that everyone is so tired of seeing. And yes, it works. But to me, it's on the out. So it's always tough. Um, It's always tough to be first because it takes a while for people to actually start paying attention to what you're doing. So our community has always been artists. And like I said, like kind of like the counterculture side of, of things. And I, our community is small, but mighty and super excited and they create really cool shit. So I'm excited to dive into that a lot more, especially with web three, like even the artists that we worked with, um, one of them, like we were having this chat in discord, about uh, a bucket hat that she made on one of the mascots. And we're like, we should make bucket hats for all the mascots. And now we're gonna work on something like that and maybe airdrop everybody who ends up getting that particular character. So I think for Off Limits, it's really just like, do you buy into the vibe and like trust that we're gonna be creating cool stuff down the line and really like build on that value? And I mean, personally, that's all I wanna be doing, so. And I. Emily, I think it's really cool how you, one thing you said earlier in our conversation was about how like, it's about like the characters and like the creative and the community first, as opposed to just like the, just the serial, right? And it's a little bit of both. And I think, um, you know, from that lens, right, there's all these different things that are are being created and products that can support um, the kind of stuff that you're creating. So it also already looks like you guys have some stuff 
um, some stuff up and some different types of merchandise. So is, is that something that comes into the fold down the line where it's like, obviously the cereal is like the, the core component of it and the characters that come with it, but like ultimately growing a brand around all these different like creative outlets and, and outputs of, of the community? Yeah, so honestly the cereal toys are just things that like I really want to make and like think would be cool. So our first cereal toy was custom spray paint cans um, because we worked with Shepard Ferry and his uh, team studio number one on the cereal mascots. And we just do so much in the art space that we thought it would be kind of cool collectible item. And that led to like this upcycled basketball bag that we worked with from a friend in the UK uh, called Tom studio is her um, design. And um, I'm trying to think, Oh my God, our socks. Like, we have the best socks on the planet. Like people email us and there multiple people have emailed us and said they wore our socks in the delivery room because they would they wanted no other socks to wear except for ours. So I don't know, we could be a sock company. I, there, I have no idea. But I get this question a lot too, where it's like kind of, okay, what's next? And it's whatever our community wants. I have a million ideas. We can create whatever products. It's kind of just whatever everybody is really excited about. And we'll just keep launching stuff until we kind of see that spark in people and just keep running in that direction. But yeah, for now, it's um, we're sticking with cereal and cereal accessories. Yeah, I think, it, I think it's just a really cool approach to things, right? There's some people who have a product perspective and say, hey, I have a product moat that I want to build and I'm going to build the best product and I'm going to keep continuing to build this product. There's other people who say I'm going to go after like a specific form of habit and then I'm going to create products around that habit. And you're kind of going in and saying I'm going after a specific community and characters and then whatever we continue to cultivate around there, like those are the types of opportunities that we're going to pursue. So I just think from like a founder, it's really interesting to hear how other founders approach like the roadmap um, moving forward and how you just like think about the opportunities of growth for the company. Yeah. I mean, I have a roadmap in my head and I just don't want to force it on people. So we'll low key drop hints of what we think will be cool. And if it gets a good response, we'll work on it. I think it's so cool of the community driving the roadmap, like the web three component of like the bucket hats and everything, because at the end of the day, the community is its own little culture that you know they don't just consume one product you know there's trends and that's your background and so i'm just really excited to 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 see the future of this unfold me too honestly <laughs> i think um we lost blaine um is he frozen for you yes yeah <laughs> yeah um you might have to come back. All right. So I have a question in terms of all of these SKUs, like, right, like these other products, how do you manage, you know, supply chain is a thing. Um, testing out products is a thing. I am sure the supply chain of cereals is very different than, you know, a custom, you know, bag, basketball bag, toy. So how do you currently manage that? And um, yeah, like, how does that work? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, I usually will just tell things how it is. I think there's a lot of founders and brands who are kind of creating this super glossy vision for what it is to run a brand and deal with supply chain. And honestly, it's been an absolute nightmare. And 
the company could have gone under multiple times simply because of like these supply chain things that are completely out of your control. You can be doing everything right. And there's just nothing that you can do, especially for cereal, because I I mean, there's a reason there's not a lot of cereal startups. It's a really difficult product to produce because there's not that many co-packers that can do it in the right way. Um, Minimums are really high. You have to be ordering tons of ingredients. You have to, it's, it's really complicated actually. And double complicated because we launched during like, you know, peak COVID and we're dealing with just general everything of launching a business during that time, the emotional stress of the environment in the world and like trying to be thoughtful about balancing like safety and like getting the cereal out there. And I, I think we really did a thoughtful job at that, but it was so, so challenging and honestly still is like because of all of that, it took us about 18 months to really get the cereal where it needs to be to know what our supply chain is consistently and now to be able to do more in retail. So cereal, super difficult to create. Um, I would say the other products we did really fast. Like those, you know, we either collaborated with a friend and they have their supply chain set and we partnered with makers and just kind of worked on a custom product. But even our tote bags, we have these kind of clear, really cool tote bags with off limits, like tape um, as the handles. And those we custom designed and worked with a friend for those, had them made, that supply chain. I mean, every supply chain has its own issues, but um, the cereal side has been really rough. Or at least, yeah, I just, so at least we're getting a good product. Yeah, no, I think it's so inspiring how you're building backwards from the brand and the vision that you have. Because, I mean, I, I couldn't imagine that, you know, how many people must have been telling you, like, you know, Emily, if there's a space that you don't want to be scattered, it's like when you're making cereal in that supply chain, like you should probably not be making other products, etc. But you know, at the end of the day, then that's not what you want to do. That's not the brand you envision. And that's not going to attract the kind of customer um, that you want. So for that reason alone, I just know this is, this is going to be successful, in my opinion, because you're, you're, you're building something that's true to you. And so again, for that reason, like this isn't the game of like running ads and just, you know, running a business on a spreadsheet. Um, so what's next for off limits? Um, like, you know, what, what does it look like to, to launch your guys? Have you guys already launched an NFT? What is that looking like in the roadmap? Yeah. So we have the, um, serial toy NFT, which was, free and I was just kind of people were going through the flow and then I was transferring it to people. And then um, we just launched this best cereal in the metaverse project. So that allow list is up. So anyone can sign up for that. And once the allow list is full, we'll set a mint date and then the whole kind of design process will get started. So I think we'll probably, um, I don't know, in the next like month or so we'll probably mint, but I would definitely get on the allow list if you can it's going to be a really cool project how do you get on it yeah how how do we do that let's let's do it right now ramon let's do it okay so you go to best cereal in the metaverse.com and is that are we doing that in a like a a web3 browser no it doesn't matter okay okay got it and then you can just it'll uh 
say sign up for the serial list and you can it'll connect you to pre-mint so that you can connect your wallet and then you're signed up sweet this is pretty straightforward yeah it's super easy it takes like 30 seconds and then if you want to you can join the discord we're having some early kind of conversations about um what the design process could look like and doing artwork reveals and all the artists are in our discord so people can ask them questions and we're building from there super exciting amazing we're, we're we're getting in on this uh right now and then we'll provide some um the links to this in in the podcast and everything like that so the audience can follow along and, and sign up as well nice yeah that would be awesome awesome cool well um okay well now we know where people can sign up to uh the list but how can people keep up with the entire project in general with off limits maybe some people are into the socks and they just want the socks or they want to keep up with your journey how can they do that yeah so i would say well we're at off limits on all social channels so that's probably where we're updating the most and then eatofflimits.com is our is our website and that'll have all the kind of latest fun random toys and we have some really cool serial collaborations coming up so definitely keep your eyes on on social or on the website in the next few weeks awesome well there you have awesome. it thank you yeah thanks so much emily thanks for having me yeah thank you all right see you guys bye